This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of classic murder mysteries and thrilling detective stories, you may be familiar with a particular plot device intended to set the scene for a suspenseful narrative. From the books of Agatha Christie to Stephen King, literary murders that occur under seemingly impossible circumstances are known as locked room mysteries. Taking the facts at face value, the crime not only initially appears to be a case of the perfect murder, it's also one which appears impossible to unravel let alone actually identify the culprit. The scenario is usually one where there are no immediate clues how the perpetrator could have entered the crime scene, or how they were able to make their escape. The only thing left behind is the unfortunate victim. Doors found to be locked from the inside are a tried-and-true setup, albeit somewhat dramatic. But as the mystery nears its climactic peak, the pieces start to fall into place. The protagonist surprises the killer with the big reveal by confronting them with a calm, logical breakdown of how they may have pulled it off and evaded detection. The usually shocking revelation of the offender's identity ends with a trip to the police station to await trial. Of course, it's all in a day's work for the hero, who we know is secretly always one step ahead of everyone else, thanks to their intuition and heightened sense of perception. You might think the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Poirot, and Nancy Drew are sometimes so fantastical they could have only come from the writer's imagination. But every now and then, the truth really is stranger than fiction, and life really does imitate art. Almost a hundred years ago, the locked room scenario is precisely what New York City police detectives found themselves facing. A man had been found dead in a room that had been locked from the inside. There was no sign of the weapon used to inflict the fatal wounds, and, more puzzling, it was impossible to figure out how the killer could have escaped, let alone got inside the room in the first place. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. In New York City during the turn of the 20th century, the influx of immigrants from Europe was showing no signs of slowing down. Thousands of people looking for a new start made the journey. For many, the opportunities awaiting them in the United States represented the so-called American dream. A 30-year-old man from Poland named Isidor Fink was no exception. By 1929, the hardworking immigrant had established his own laundry business on the ground floor of a Fifth Avenue tenement building in Harlem. Isidore Fink lived in separate quarters that were attached to the business. At around 10.30 p.m. on the evening of March 9, 1929, 
a neighbor heard what sounded like screams coming from inside the laundry area. Loud thuds quickly followed. Concerned, the neighbor ran outside to find a police officer who was stationed nearby. He soon discovered there was no way of gaining entry to the premises, as all the windows were fastened and the door was bolted from the inside. If Isidore Fink had, in fact, been attacked by someone, it stood to reason the assailant could still be inside. To the officer, it was certainly a good possibility, so he called for backup. It didn't take long before more police arrived on scene. The only way into the premises was through an open transom above the front door. As there was no way even the most slender police officer could fit through, law enforcement enlisted the help of a young boy. They lifted him up to the small window, and once inside, he was able to slide open the 7-inch deadbolt. When the police made their way inside, their fears were realized. On the floor of the back room was a very dead Isidore Fink. He'd been shot twice in the chest and once in the left wrist. Regardless of whether it was murder or suicide, police were sure the weapon would not be hard to find. They searched every corner of the premises, but to their surprise, found nothing. The search widened to the immediate vicinity of the business and then to the surrounding neighborhood. No firearm, spent rounds, or any weapon whatsoever was found. It became pretty clear that suicide was not the manner of death. There was no doubt Fink had been taken by surprise while going about his business, but there was no evidence of a struggle or any sign that someone was there to rob the place. The gas stove was still heating an iron, and next to his body was a pile of laundry. Authorities were puzzled how anyone could have gained access when the front window and door were locked from the inside and all the windows were protected by iron bars. The transom itself, which had a broken hinge, was identified as a potential vantage point for the killer, but too small to use as an entry. Police considered the possibility that the culprit may have climbed up the outside of the building and shot through the gap. While that scenario did seem a bit far-fetched, they wondered if the killer could have forced open the transom to get a better shot. This seemed like a reasonable enough theory, but unfortunately, the evidence, or lack of it, did not provide any support. Curiously, when Fink's body was examined, the bullet wound on his wrist revealed a powder burn. Such injuries are only present if someone is shot at very close range. So, the theory that he was shot through the transom went, forgive the pun, out the window. The neighborhood, at the time, was experiencing an increase in crime. As the economy bottomed out in the months leading up to what would become the Great Depression, muggings and break-ins were on the rise. Like many business owners, Isidore Fink was constantly worried about being robbed. He took security measures by always keeping the door locked, opening it only for the regular customers he trusted. But it seems that wasn't enough. In such an economic climate, 
it was reasonable to theorize that he'd been killed in a robbery gone wrong. Police, however, found that money had been left in his pockets and in the cash register. Also, it appeared that no other valuables had been taken. To authorities, that ruled out robbery as a motivating factor. To make things even more baffling, there was only one set of fingerprints at the crime scene, and they belonged to Isidore Fink. Detectives could not figure out the precise sequence of events, let alone a possible motive, location of the weapon, potential suspect, and how the person even got in or out. Investigators started to look into Fink's background and relationships to see if there was anyone who wanted him dead. This, however, would prove difficult, as he largely kept to himself and didn't have many friends, or enemies for that matter. The man's landlord had no problems to report, stating that he kept his head down and worked hard to support his wife and family back in Europe. He didn't go out late at night and was not seen in the company of women. He appeared to have no debts or that he was mixed up in any nefarious business dealings. The failing economy left many small businesses vulnerable to organized crime gangs looking for so-called protection money. Isidore Fink had somehow managed to avoid all that. Still, detectives were no closer to figuring out exactly how a man could have been murdered inside a locked building with no evidence of a break-in. As police spoke to the few people who knew the victim, one individual had what appeared to be meaningful information. The person told police that Fink did not close until midnight on Saturdays. The witness stated that he went into the shop around 9.45 p.m. on the night of the murder. He said he saw a couple speaking with Fink about buying second-hand underwear, which was said to be common for launderers to sell at the time. Given he was in the middle of a conversation with the couple, the witness left. Unfortunately, there was little to confirm his account, and police were unable to locate the couple. To investigators, the man claiming to see the victim hours before the killing was curious. Is it possible that he was the killer? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As police retraced Isidore's last steps on the night in question, they found nothing out of the ordinary. He ran some laundry deliveries and returned to his living quarters around 10.15 p.m. The neighbor who went looking for help after hearing the screams that night told police that she had not heard any gunshots, only what she described as loud blows following the fight. So was it possible the killer had shot him using a silencer? The devices had been around for almost 25 years by that point, 
so maybe that was it. Also, police wondered if there was a secret entrance to the premises. But there was no evidence of any hidden doors or sliding shelves in front of the walls. Aside from the transom being the only obvious point of escape, there was no way the killer would decide to squeeze through a small window when they could simply run out the front door. Going back to our helpful witness who saw the mystery couple talking to Fink, maybe the following scenario was plausible. Perhaps the man did stop in to visit, but it was around the time the neighbor heard the commotion, half an hour after the man claimed he was at the shop. Including this detail to police conveniently placed the man at the crime scene should anyone later report seeing him there. If the two men got into an argument that escalated and a gun was used that was fitted with a silencer, that would account for the injuries, no sounds of gunshots, and only Fink's prints being found at the scene. The killer, horrified at what occurred, fled the scene, taking the weapon with him. Fink, incapacitated but not yet dead, struggled to the door, engaging the bolt to prevent his assailant from returning. He staggered to the back room, where he collapsed and died on the floor. Of course, this theory relies on the assumption that Isidore Fink survived for some time after being shot twice in the chest. Depending on the location of the gunshot wounds, that's entirely possible. But the nature of his chest wounds suggested he would have died immediately. To this day, the case remains unsolved, with the NYPD commissioner declaring only two years after the murder that the case is an insoluble mystery. Less than 10 years after Isidore Fink met an unfortunate and puzzling end in his New York City laundry business, another locked room case, of sorts, made headlines this time in Paris. The clandestine nature of the victim's work, as well as the circumstances of her death, only added to the intrigue. On a spring evening in 1937, life in pre-war Paris was about to be disrupted in the most shocking of ways. The city's iconic underground metro system would become the focus of one of Europe's most gripping mysteries as it moved toward the beginning of World War II. Just before 6.30 p.m. on May 16, 1937, a metro train arrived at Port Doré Station in the inner city. Six passengers boarded the first-class car where a lone woman was already sitting, seemingly asleep. As the train pulled away from the platform, the new passengers got the shock of their lives. The woman's bleeding body started to slump before falling to the floor. As the horrified passengers looked closer, they could see a knife in the side of the woman's neck. The blade had been pushed so far in, the only part of the weapon visible was the hilt. The woman was transported to a hospital, but was pronounced dead on arrival. It was later determined the vicious attack had severed her spinal cord. Authorities later identified the victim as 30-year-old Letitia Toreau. As French police retraced the last movements before she died, 
they made a curious discovery. The information would have baffling implications for the investigation into her murder. Detectives learned that Letitia Toreau had boarded the train at Port de Sheraton Station at 6.27 p.m. At that stop, she was the only person in the subway car. Yet, by the time the train arrived at the next station less than 90 seconds later, she had been horribly stabbed and left for dead. How does a person board an empty train car and end up the victim of a violent attack less than a minute later? Passengers told detectives they didn't see anyone near the woman or the area of the train where the attack occurred. The question for police was how the killer could have escaped undetected in a matter of seconds. That was, of course, in addition to identifying a suspect and uncovering a motive. As the grisly story made headlines, journalists were quick to point out that Letitia Toreau was the first recorded murder committed on the Paris metro. Determined to solve the case, investigators looked into every aspect of Toreau's life and family background. She was born in Italy in 1907, and like many Italian families during that period, they relocated to France to find work. This is where Letitia found a job as a factory worker. She was unmarried at the time of her death, so detectives looked for anyone who may have been jealous or felt rejected. While she had been involved in several relationships by that stage of her life, police found no one who they believed wished her harm. When she wasn't working at the factory, Letitia earned extra income working as an attendant at a Paris dance hall. It was only when detectives learned that she had been working there under a totally different name that the investigation took a surprising turn. They discovered that Letitia Tarot had been visiting the Italian embassy in secret. She was also doing it far more often than one would expect of a typical person living abroad. Using her alias, she had apparently been gathering intelligence on a far-right terrorist organization known as La Cagoule. It quickly became clear to authorities that their victim was a spy. At least now, detectives had an idea of a possible motive for her murder. It certainly would make sense, given the dangerous and risky nature of the work. Still, the lack of witnesses, a suspect, and the exceptionally narrow window of time the killer had to pull it off only added to the mystery. As time passed and the outbreak of war became imminent, the investigation slowed until finally the case went cold. It didn't help that almost all French law enforcement personnel were preparing for a German invasion. 25 years later, in November 1962, something happened that brought new life to the old case. Investigators in Paris received a letter from someone claiming to be Letitia Toreau's killer. While police are no strangers to receiving baseless admission letters from attention seekers, it was the level of detail in this one that made detectives take notice. As they read the lengthy confession, it became fascinating for more reasons than one. As the writer went on to explain, the motive for the attack was less sinister than international intelligence gathering. According to the letter, it was as police originally suspected 25 years earlier. The murder was romantically motivated. It read as follows. No doubt you will remember the assassination. 
I am the assassin. This letter will no doubt surprise you. Why does the murderer of a reputedly perfect crime want to recount his crime more than 20 years later? I cannot say exactly. No doubt I need to free myself, having kept the secret for so many years that I no longer feel remorse. Perhaps also a kind of pride pushes me to bring the necessary elements to the resolution of this case. I am from Perpignan, where I was born in 1915, and at the end of my secondary studies, I expressed the desire to become a doctor and went to Paris in 1935. I soon knew all the dance halls and cabarets in Paris and its surroundings. It was in a dance hall that I met Letitia in November 1936. She was very pretty and possessed the rare charm of being a woman who had already lived. I immediately fell in love. We only met in cafes in the Latin Quarter or in my car. She granted me, for my taste, too few appointments, but as time passed I became more and more insistent. She treated my love with sweet irony, which hurt me, and I was getting impatient. Taking my courage in both hands, I asked her to become my wife. She laughed in my face. Wounded in my pride and my love, I went so far as to threaten her, and she turned me away quite harshly. I then decided to forget it and immersed myself in the work for my exams, but I could not forget her. So after a month, I went to the dance hall where I knew how to find her. I humbly asked her to let me see her again. After some hesitation, she accepted and we made an appointment for May 16th to meet for dinner. But on May 16th in the morning, she came to meet me in a cafe to cancel dinner. Furious, I accused her of finding another man. She replied that indeed she had an appointment with another man, told me she would never see me again, and left. I was mad with rage and felt cheated. I returned to my room in the grip of the most murderous anger. As the hours passed, I calmed down, but was possessed by a cold rage. After hesitating for a long time, I decided to join her at the dance hall where I thought she had gone anyway. Before leaving, I put in my pocket a knife. I waited for Letitia in front of the door. She left around 6 p.m. and went to take the bus. I followed her by car and entered the metro just behind her. She got into first class and I got in just behind her and called to her when she sat down. Surprised, she turned around. I took out my knife and plunged it into her throat. She didn't have time to cry out. I repositioned the body and descended quickly to remount in the next car. The train left immediately. At Port Doré, I was informed the body had been discovered. Like all travelers, I was made to get off the train. At that moment, I considered going to find out if Letitia was dead, but I was afraid to learn that I had killed her. I saw the stretcher pass and almost felt sick. I believe that if one of the policemen had asked me anything, I would have collapsed. But soon we were let go, and it was only the next day that I learned of Letitia's death. During the investigation, I also learned that my jealousy was unfounded. The police were completely unaware of my existence. I passionately followed the investigation through the newspapers and learned I had committed a perfect crime, not attributable to my intelligence, but to an extraordinary combination of circumstances. Now many years have passed, and this secret weighed heavily, but I have no more remorse. You will probably judge me harshly, but in truth, I would probably have benefited from mitigating circumstances, hoping that thus the case will be closed. 
I send you my best regards. Despite the compelling step-by-step description of events, police were never able to confirm the identity of the supposed killer. The letter was not only anonymous, but the man in question made it clear he had no intention of revealing his name out of respect for his family. Turned out, in this case at least, the perfect crime was nothing more than just perfect luck. production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hope of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode.
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.